0: Well, we are in the series through these letters in the first, in the chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. And we're calling this Letters from Jesus because uh, each of these is uh, a message that the resurrected Christ addresses to a congregation of Christians uh, scattered throughout Asia Minor, uh, which is modern day Turkey. And the text that we're looking at is Jesus addressed to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, I am assuming that's obvious to you, but rather Philadelphia in what is now modern-day uh, Turkey. And this uh, group of people, um, as you can probably infer by the, by the reading, had been shut out by their community, particularly the, the Jewish community who had control of the synagogue because they would have been worshiping in the synagogue. There were a group of, of Jews there, and apparently the ones who decided to follow Jesus had been excluded from the synagogue, from literally a door had been shut in their face, which is behind Jesus' words when he says, I have opened a door for you that no one can shut. So that's the background here. Now, if you had been invited to a birthday party that all your friends had been invited to, and then you had been uninvited from that birthday party, they said, we don't want you to come anymore. If that had happened to you, then you can just imagine a little bit of what it would feel like For these people to have just been shut out from their community, from the synagogue. It it was worse than being uninvited to a party you want to be at. It was was like being cut off from family and friends. It it was actually like being cut off from God because that was the place of worship. Now, this whole idea of being excluded or shut out is a strong theme throughout this passage. And it's something that, as modern people, we have a, a finely tuned sensitivity to being excluded but we've lost our ability to explain why we fear it so much i'm gonna explain what i mean by this in the early 2000s as social media began to mushroom all over the world so did a phenomenon that was called fomo you know fomo is it's an acronym for the fear of missing out the fear of missing out uh tend to uh coincided with the eruption of social media apps. It kind of makes sense because they almost serve as these magic portals through which you could suddenly see what everybody else is doing. Uh, you think you'd see what everyone else is doing. You only see what they want you to see they're doing. And, and so what ends up happening is looking through the windows of Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and whatever social media app you use, it looks like everybody else is having all the fun. And symptoms, and they they talk about this in psychological journals, the symptoms of FOMO are obsessively checking your social media apps, feeling dissatisfied with your life when you see what everyone else is doing, and over-scheduling yourself so that you're always doing something because you're afraid there'll be a gap in your your schedule. It's a fear of missing out. It's a fear of being excluded. It's, it's, it's the sense that I'm on the outside of something I want to be on the inside of. We, we are, have a finely tuned sensitivity to it, but we've lost our ability to explain why. I'll just give another example, and that is the increase in the use of the word inclu- inclusion. Inclusivity, inclusive, is, is a very high virtue. What is this telling us? It's telling us that as a society, we're really, really sensitive to being, living outside what we feel like is a shut door, but we've lost our ability to explain why we feel that way. Now, the Bible gives answers to things that we feel but can't put our finger on. What if the answer to the question, why do we feel this, have this highly tuned sensitivity being excluded, the Bible says because we were meant to be included in more than just everyone's parties and more than just everyone's games, we were meant to be included in the presence of God. We were meant to have access to heaven. That's the message of this passage here. That's what Jesus is telling. So to a group of people that had been shut out from their community, to a people who had been literally, the door was in their face, Jesus said, they may shut and lock the door to the synagogue, but if I've opened the door to heaven, no one's going to shut that door. You see, Jesus is speaking to the deepest need anybody could possibly have, and that is the need to be included, not just at a birthday party, not just in the gatherings of your friends, not just whatever thing your social media app tells you that you're missing out on, but the need to be included in the presence of God. The door that Jesus said has opened we see in chapter 4 verse 1 if you just glance over a few verses to the next chapter. John tells us what the door is is leading to. He says, I looked and behold a door standing open where? In heaven. The door, the access, is the access to heaven. So I want to unfold this passage, at least the theme of this passage, it's so rich and multifaceted, I can only deal with one theme of it, and that is the theme of having access to God as symbolized by this open door. We're going to look, first of all, at our need for an open door. We're going to look at the, uh, sorry, we're going to first of all look at, yes, our need for the open door, the possibility of this open door, and then finally what it means to live before the open door. So our need for this open door, the possibility for this open door, and then third, What it means to live before an open door so first of all let's look at our need for this open door when jesus says if you look at in verse uh, 7 he says the words of the holy one the true one who has the key of david who opens and no one shuts who shuts and no one opens when he says that jesus is actually referring to a prophecy given 800 years years earlier as recorded in the book of isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22 and and it happened like this so there was a there was a secretary of state would would be our equivalent to a secretary of state who was unworthy of the job right so they had to fire him basically and bring on a new secretary of state named Eliakim and Eliakim that name simply means God establishes so he was established as the one who possessed the key to to the king's palace. So Eliakim has this key and the key is both literal and and figurative it means that. If Eliakim opens the door to the king's palace, whoever he opens the door to, they can get into the king. They have access. If Eliakim opens the door to the palace, you can see the king. You can even have dinner with the king. If he leaves that door open for you, you can even live in the palace with the king. That's that's the symbolism of having this, this key of David, the key that opens access to the king. And what Jesus is saying in this passage, He's saying, I am the holder of the ultimate key that gives access to the king of kings, that gives access to God's presence. Jesus is saying, I've got the keys, I've opened the door to you. The door to heaven. Now, a couple things I want to say about this, where that we have access to, and that is heaven. One is, sometimes when we use the word heaven, we have a hard time getting excited about it. Because when we read the descriptions of heaven in the book of Revelation, not everybody gets excited about the idea of streets of gold, okay? Not everybody gets excited about jasper walls or pearly gates. And so when we read this description, and and let me just remind you, nowhere does the Bible say that we'll all be angels strumming on harps, okay? That is clearly unbiblical and actually sounds incredibly boring too. So, but even with some of the descriptions we're given, it's It's. sometimes we feel hard to get excited about it, but I think we need to think about it this way. The descriptions of heaven that we read of the Bible, streets of gold, gates made out of pearls, the walls made out of precious metal. What What's going on here is... The, the writers of Scripture are, are stuffing, they're cramming into the space that we have access to. That is the categories of thought that we have. The most precious things possible to open our imagination about what we can't truly wrap our minds around. It's, if you think about it this way, it's kind of like an icon on your on your phone or computer that you tap on or double-click on to open up the program. When you, when you tap on the icon and the program opens up, you're not disappointed that the icon disappears because the real program is here, right? So, so these... These images of heaven are pointers to what honestly exceeds our ability to imagine. So heaven, heaven is greater than anything we could possibly imagine. And these descriptions are meant to point to what this new heavens and the new earth will actually be like. But there's another problem we have with heaven, and I want to, want to open this up as well to you, is that sometimes there's a thought to people who may not believe in heaven or have a hard time believing that there's such a thing, is that heaven is a sort of thing that's too good to be true. Is, is this description of heaven, is this door open to heaven? Is this just something that is too good to be true? In other words, I want to put it this way because I think about this every time I do a funeral of a believer. We're reminding ourselves that this person, often there's a, someone lying in a casket right here, that this person is. Their their soul is no longer with us, they are now in heaven. And that idea brings comfort to their loved ones. And the question I ask myself, and I ask the people present at funerals, I say, is this just a, a way that we try to get people comfort, whether or not there's any reality to it? Is this too good to be true? There are some things in life that are too good to be true. Like the moon being made out of cheese, for example. Now, I love cheese so much, that would be really cool, even just to think about, like, looking up there, and like, man, that's a ball of cheese up there. That would be awesome, right? right? There's some things that are too good to be true, right? There are other things that if they were not true, nothing could be good. I'll say that again. There are some things that are too good to be true. There are other things that if they were not true, nothing could be good. Like justice. Like Love like truth itself. I think this is what uh, the the, uh, great American musician Leonard Bernstein was getting at. When he was in his book, The Joy of Music, he says there is a kind of music that is, quote, the stuff from heaven, the power to make you feel at the finish, something is right in the world. There is something that checks throughout, something that follows its own law consistently, something we can trust, something that will never let us down. Like this is, the, this is what we're talking about here, is that when you listen to music or when you, when you hear maybe a social reformer, like uh, the speeches of Martin Luther uh, uh, Jr., when you hear these things, you realize that they're invoking something that is beyond, something that if it were not true, there could be no good in this world. What we do know is that, is that heaven is one of those things, because heaven is a world of love and justice. Uh, the great American theologian from the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, he's most famous for this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How many of you read that sermon before, maybe in high school, when they still required that as reading in high school? Sur- Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I wish that I wish that he was known for uh, more sermons than just that one, because he did preach other sermons. In particular, he preached a a sermon, or we have written a sermon for us, called Heaven is a World of Love. I want to read uh, an excerpt from the sermon to you. He says this, there in heaven, the fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one, is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it. There in heaven, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. There, the, um, there enough for all to drink it and, and swim in, yea, so as to overflow the world as it were a deluge of love. There, every soul is like a note in a concert of delightful music that sweetly harmonizes with every other note and altogether blends in the most rapturous strains in praising God and the Lamb forever. This is something, if it weren't true, nothing could be good. Now, this is what the door is open to. Jesus is telling the people in Philadelphia, I've opened this door to heaven. But we're under the point, our need for it, and I need to ask this question and address this why is it that we tend to feel excluded from it? I think one of the most common human experiences is to feel like we're on the outside of something we need to be on the inside of. In fact, I think this is kind of what Karl Marx was getting at, 19th century German philosopher and and economist, when when he said that in a capitalistic society, we are, he uses the word alienation, we we seem alienated from our work, alienated from our coworkers, alienated, we feel this sense of distance. Now this is not a comment about capitalism, okay, or not an endorsement of Karl Marx, what I'm simply saying is that I think that people feel this and try to describe this, that we we feel alienated. You know the Bible's explanation of this? The Bible says we feel alienated because we are alienated from the thing that we need to be inside, and that is the presence of God. The the teaching of the Bible is that our sin is what has separated us from God. Our sin is the thing that puts us outside of what we need to be on the inside of. C.S. Lewis wrote this in a sermon called Weight of Glory, and this is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I I couldn't put it in any better way than he does here, because he talks about our longing to be on the inside, and our feeling that we're on the outside. He, He says that in the New Testament, we are warned that, quote, it may happen to any one of us to appear at last before the face of God and hear only the appalling words, I never knew you, depart from me. In some sense, As dark to the intellect as it is unendurable to the feelings, we can be both banished from the presence of him who knows, who is present everywhere, and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally, and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged, We walk every day on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. Apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia... longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy but the truest index of our real situation and to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all merits and also the healing of that old ache i think it is so true I think people have acknowledged it throughout the history that we have this inerasable inerasable feeling that we are on the outside of something we desperately want to be on the inside of. And that thing is not just someone's party or not just the elite or the inner circle at work or the next echelon. That thing that we want to be inside is the very presence of God. We feel excluded. Jesus is saying to this people, the people in Philadelphia, that door's not shut to you because I have the key. Now, if you feel in your heart or have felt this sense of being on the outside, then this next point is the best news, all right? And that is the possibility of this open door. So we looked at our need for this open door, our need to access heaven, to access the presence of God. Now, let's look at the possibility of this open door. And we're going to look at it in two parts. We're going to look at, first of all, who makes this possible, and second, how he makes this, impo- he makes this possible. So first of all, who is it that makes this open door possible? And it's very clear in verse uh, 7 and 8, Jesus says, uh, Jesus identifies himself as the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And then if that wasn't clear enough, in, in verse 8, he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So Jesus, in this letter to the Philadelphians, he's identifying himself, he's saying, I am the one who opens your access to the world of love, the world of unspeakable, unfathomable delight, this world that, that Jonathan Edwards described is this overflow of love from which everyone can drink and, and swim and bathe, and Jesus says, I give access to that. I've opened that door because I have the keys. That's what jesus is saying that's jesus elsewhere in the bible presents himself as like being a ladder between heaven and earth the way we can access god he is after all the god man I mean, he is 100% God and 100% man in a combination that exceeds our ability to understand it. But Jesus presents himself as the one who can bring people into the very presence of God. I've quoted this verse many times, but with his disciples in the upper room shortly before he went to his crucifixion, he said, if you have seen me, you've seen God, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, I am access to God. So who opens the store? It is Jesus himself. Now, how does he do it? How does Jesus give us access into this space that we have a desperate longing to be in, in the space, moreover, that is that desire behind every desire? (laughs) How does he do it? Well, the answer is given more clearly earlier in the book of Revelation, so if you just flip back a page. The first time keys are made mention of is in verse 18 of chapter 1. Jesus here is identifying himself as the living one. He says, I lived, I died, and I'm alive again, and I have the keys to death in Hades. So Jesus is saying this, summary of my life, I lived, I died, I came back alive, and now I'm holding some keys, the keys that unlock death, which are the same keys that open life, Now, what does that even mean about how we access heaven, or how how Jesus provides access? Well, those three stages that I just summarized for you, Jesus lived, he died, and he lives again, are the key to understanding how Jesus gives us access. Because Jesus' life, the way Jesus lived, he lived as someone who deserved to be on the inside, Every moment of Jesus' life was lived he, flawlessly. When it comes to mor- morally speaking, he was a flawless person. And yet, near the end of his life, he was condemned as a criminal and crucified. Now, crucifixion was more than just a way to execute people. It was a way to absolutely dehumanize them, crush the humanity out of them. And the of dying that way was, was more than death for Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, it was not just death, it was banishment. When Jesus died on the cross, it was as if heaven had slammed the door shut on him. See, the exile, the banishment that, that our sin makes us deserve. We ought not to be in heaven because if we got in those doors, it wouldn't be heaven anymore. It wouldn't be a place of love or justice because we'd be bringing the infection of sin within. Jesus took that ban. Jesus was banished, exiled, shut out for us. That's how He did it. That's what it means when the Bible says Christ died for our sins. Now, one way to picture this is the way Charles Dickens ends his uh, great novel, Tale of Two Cities, where near the end of that novel, there is a man named Darnay, and he is in a prison awaiting execution by guillotine the very next morning. So he's condemned. He's going to get his head chopped off. And to his complete surprise, as he's just thinking about what's going to happen in the next morning, to his complete surprise, his, uh, the, the door to his jail cell comes open, and uh, a man that he knew previously named Carton comes in. And he's like, what in the world are you doing here? And Carton says, be quiet. Take your boots off. I'll take your boots. You take my boots. Take your coat off. You take my coat. I'll take yours. Take your scarf I'll take yours, you take mine. Take your hat, take your hair ribbon. They they, they changed clothes. They they looked. And, And it began to dawn on Darnay what was happening, and that is that Carton was exchanging places with him. So that the next morning, when the blade of the guillotine fell, it severed the head, not of condemned Darnay, but of innocent Carton. That's what Jesus did for us, in an infinitely greater way. Jesus... In my place condemned he stood. That's how, now let me just let me say this. If Jesus didn't come back alive, none of that would have mattered. Jesus said, it's not just my life, it's not just my death, but it's also I came back alive. And why, did Jesus, why was Jesus exiled? So he, could, he was exiled, banished to death, so he could come back with the keys to death and say, now anyone who looks to me, I will unlock that door for them. Anyone who believes in me, I'll unlock that door for them. Jesus came back alive. That's how Jesus could throw open the door to the the believers there in Philadelphia. That's how Jesus can throw open the door to you too. Why? Because he died for our sins. That's how Jesus provides us access to the presence of God. Now, the question then that we should ask is how can this door be opened for me? How can this door be opened for me? Well, that takes us to the third stage in our, in our study here on this theme of the open door from this passage. You notice that Jesus says in verse 8, I know your works, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power. What does it mean to live before this open door? This is our third, the third stage in our study. What does it mean to live before the open door? Well, it means, first of all, to acknowledge what Jesus acknowledged about the people in Philadelphia, and that is that they have a little power. You have to realize that you are weak, too weak to open it. You have to realize that this door is open to you, not because you could pry it open, but because someone else did. Jesus said to these people, I know you have a little power. I've opened the door, not you. The first step to life before the open door is to realize you are weak. You are weak. I once heard a a delightful illustration about this, that the door to heaven is not the sort of door you can open. The door to heaven is not open to the strong, it's open to the weak. A preacher told a story about two dogs standing in front of a closed door, out from underneath that door, you can just, there's the waft, wafting scent of a steak cooking from the inside, and these, one of the, the, the one dog is this big dog, the other dog is a little dog. The big dog has beautiful, glossy fur, the little dog is like a, a mangy little, looks like a chihuahua or something, like an overgrown rat of some sort, no offense to anybody that has chihuahuas, but, but here he is, just this, this mangy little, little dog, and, and the big dog says to the little dog, you see that door there? I bet you can't even open that door. The little dog says, I bet you're right. The big dog, the big dog says, I bet I could open that door. The little dog says, Go ahead and try. So the big dog puffs up his chest and he comes at that door with all his might and he rams himself against that door and there just this big thud. He falls back down, he goes huffing and puffing and panting, and he says, Oh, you haven't seen anything yet. So he throws himself against the door again. Bam! Nothing happens. Oh, he says, it just takes a little trying. He says, it takes a little brain work. He said, how about this? He leaps and he catches the doorknob by his mouth and he starts going like this on the doorknob, slobbering and drooling and snarling and everything. After about five minutes, he collapses and he's huffing, he's puffing, he's panting and he looks at the little dog. He says, little dog, if I can't open you, open it, you certainly can't either. The little dog walks up to the door, places a little skinny paw on the door and just goes like this, and the door comes flying open and a man on the inside says hey little guy come on in see it's the door doesn't open to the strong it opens to the weak Jesus says I know you have a little strength the door to heaven doesn't open because you forced it open it opens only if you know the one on the inside who holds the keys and Jesus says I'm the one who has the keys you don't have strength. You couldn't have opened this door. In fact, nobody can open this door. Only Jesus can open this door because he holds the, the keys to death and Hades. He has the keys to heaven. He's the one that opens it to anybody. This is not the sort of door that opens to the strong. It's the sort of door that opens to the weak, which is good news for anybody who feels weak like you and I do. It's hard news for those who feel strong. That's why throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus often says, said, I haven't come to call the righteous to repentance but sinners. You realize the kind of people that crowded around Jesus were the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the social outcasts, the racial minorities, and children. What do they have in common? They feel their weakness. And it was the strong people who didn't come to Jesus because they felt insulted by him. They felt they were strong. They felt like they're the kind of people, they had pried every door open in life and it had been just fine. They had pried open the door to good education. They had pried the door open to having a good family. They had pried the door open to having a disciplined approach to life. They pried their door open to having a successful career. They had pried the door open to being involved in a good religious community. And so they assumed, well, I could pry the door open to heaven too. That's the, that door cannot be opened by strength, not the strength of any human being. That door is not open to the strong, but to the weak. Why? Because there is only one who holds the keys to that door, and his name is Jesus. Some of you may have a hard time with this, too, because you feel strong. Every door is open for you. This door is open to those who know they're weak. This door is open to those who all they can do is put a feeble paw up to that door and call out to the one on the inside. But for some of you, this is such good news. For some of you, this may be even the first time you're hearing this good news. You thought that a relationship with Christ, you thought Christianity was all about, was all about reforming yourself morally. Oh, that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is not a message about what you can do to pry that door open. Christianity is the news that that door, open has been, that door has been flung open to you by Jesus Christ. It's not a way for you to get to God. It's a message that God has come to you. That's what it means to be a Christian That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to accept the salvation by grace and not by works. That's good news for weak people. It's good news for sinful people. It's good news for you, and it's good news for me. To live your life before the open door, you must know that you are weak. But once you've acknowledged that, my friends, living before the open door means that you are loved. You are loved. Look at verse 9. In contrast to those who Jesus says have shut you shut you out, They are the synagogue of Satan. They say they're Jews, in other words, they say they claim that they're my real people, but they're not they're not they're lying. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Life before the open door is knowing that you are loved. This may be one of the hardest things for you to get your minds wrapped around because you may feel so unloved, unlovable. I read recently a a biography of someone who said about himself when he was a teenager, he said, I was erecting a strong stone fortress against love because I thought myself unlovable. do you think that you're unlovable? You're you're like, if anybody knew who I really was, I don't think anybody in the world would love me. You know, and that's one reason why you feel so insecure in your relationships. Because you're always having to put on a, an exterior that looks lovable when you're, when you're afraid. If the, anybody sees any cracks in, exterior, in that exterior, then suddenly you're gonna, they're going to realize what I really am and they won't love me anymore. And so a lot of your time and a lot of your energy is spent trying to prove to people that you're somebody you're not. And it, and it intensifies the problem because then you feel like a hypocrite. But you notice here that Jesus combines perfect knowledge and perfect love. He says, I know you and I love you. T- to be known without being loved is to feel the agony of judgment. And to be loved without being known is to feel the fear of being hip- a hypocrite. But to be known and loved, that's a taste of heaven. And that's what Jesus says, living before the open door, living, living before the fact that this World of love is open to you, not because you had the strength, power, righteousness, piety to open it, but because someone has opened it upon his own merits. That means that you can be known and loved and you can just revel in that and enjoy that. That's okay to enjoy being loved by Jesus. In fact, you should know that you are loved by Jesus. In fact, other people should know that you're loved by Jesus because this passage says, Jesus says about your enemies, those who have shut the door to you, he says, someday they will know how much I love you. If Jesus wants his enemies, to know how much he loves you? Don't you think he wants you to know how much he loves you? Don't, don't you think he wants your heart to just overflow with, with, a, with a brimming sense of the fact that you are so loved? I absolutely think that's why God gave us the Bible, to tell us that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have heaven, everlasting life. To live life before the open door means You, yes, you, you are known and loved. It means acknowledging that you're weak. It means knowing that you're known and loved. But it also means that you are secure. You are secure. Because look at this. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon, hold fast what you have, that no one may seize your crown. Jesus is speaking of some time, and now I, I won't get into the, into the debates about this verse, because there are a lot of, a lot of things that have been written on this, but I, suffice it to say at this point that Jesus is speaking about some time which there will be a worldwide time of, of testing from which God will protect his people. He will keep them secure. Now whatever this means, we could at least say this, To live life before the open door means to live a life in which you know you are secure, that you'll be kept safe. There's two parts of this. There's the protection of your security, but there's also this permanence. If you look at, and this is the whole idea behind uh, the metaphor of a pillar. He says in verse 12, The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Make him a pillar in the temple of God. My God. Now, some of you are thinking like, I don't really get excited about the idea of being a pillar. Well, think about what Jesus means here. A pillar is something that is permanent. There are two pillars, at least, that I could see in this room right here. This one right here and this one right here. And I'm sure that these, these walls are important too, okay? Now, think about your own house. When my wife and I moved uh, into the house that we live in right now, we were thinking about ways we could expand the kitchen. And we're like, what wonder if we could take this wall out. You know what you want to find out before you take a wall out? Is it a load-bearing wall? There are some walls that you could take out, no big deal. There's other walls, if you take them out, you may not have much of a house left. Right? Why? Because those walls are permanent. These pillars are permanent. They're not going anywhere. Jesus is saying, if living before an open, light, before the open door means, you are permanent. I'm not taking you out, Jesus says. You are here to stay and, and to live before an open door to have access to God that Jesus has provided you means, means to know that both now and forever I have a permanent place in a relationship with God. It's not, I'm not going anywhere. That's what Jesus wants you to know. Jesus doesn't want you to worry about whether or not you're going to be taken out. Jesus don't want you to worry about whether or not at some point one day he's going to love you and the other day he's not going to love you. One day he's going to want you to be included in his presence. The other day he's going to be like, no, thank you, I've had enough of you. No, God says for all your faults, for all your failures, for all your flaws, you have a permanent place in my presence, just like a pillar. Jesus wants you to know that there is security, there is protection, and there is also this permanence. And finally, living before the open door means that you have identity identity look at this in verse uh, the latter parts of verse 12 never shall he go out of it that's the permanence and i will get this write on him the name of my god and the name of the city of my god the new jerusalem which comes down from my god out of heaven and my own new name looks like jesus is going to have a lot of writing to do why what is he writing he's writing names Why is he writing names on us? He's giving us an identity. He's telling us who we are. Why? Because when you're shut out from something, when you feel excluded, when you feel alienated and exiled, it's not just the feeling of distance, but it's a feeling of who even am I? If I'm not in someone's presence, if I'm not in in the presence of someone who both knows me and loves loves me, I don't even know who I am. Jesus says, you'll never wonder who you are because I'm gonna write my name on you, I'm gonna write the name of my city on you, and I'm gonna write the name of my father on you, and that name is inscribed in granite with a diamond point. It's never gonna be erased. That's your identity. I think one of the problems in our modern era is that we feel so confused about who we are. You ever feel confused about who you are If you live life before this open door, access to God, you never need to be confused about who you are. There was this uh, German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who um, lived during the World War II. He was executed at the age of 39 for being involved in a resistance movement to overthrow Hitler. And he was executed by hanging just a month before the war ended. And when I read the works of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I read um, a man of courage, a man of conviction, a man of strength. I mean, to be involved in this resistance movement when it seemed like Hitler was taking over everything. He was the most powerful person in, in Europe, and he was facing up against the Fuhrer. And yet Bonhoeffer left a poem that made me think that he had struggles just like I have struggles about who I am. I'm going to read parts of this poem to you. He said, Am I really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I know of myself? Restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage, struggling for ba- breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectations of great events. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptible, woe-begone weakling? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Then he ends the poem with this phrase. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine that's the kind of security you could have when you live life before an open door. Jesus says, I'm going to write my name on you so that if you or anybody else is confused about who you are, you can know at least this, you belong to me. That gives you identity. And that's what it means to live before an open door. Weak, yes. Secure. Known, yes. Loved. Are you living before that open door? Have you ever known that the door can be opened to you because of Jesus? Your tendency is gonna think, I've got to change something about myself first. No, as the song, the old invitation song goes, just as I am without one plea. Just as I am and waiting not to cleanse my, rid my soul of one dark blot. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. we need to we need if you've never come to that open door you need to come to that open door I'm going to be standing right here right after the service I'm going to stand right at the front after people are going to be milling around and if you want to talk to me about coming coming to that open door talk to me about it I want to answer your questions don't don't leave today without getting these questions answered and if you know that door is open to you are you living before that open door